Welcome to episode 134 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Lovin. Today we caught up with Braden Coetz. He's a designer at Google Ventures. We dig into all sorts of interesting stuff, his background, what he's up to at Google. But before we get into that, a few announcements. First up, we're throwing a meetup with our friends at Sketch and Nihilus. Sebastian DeWitt put this whole thing together. It's going to be fucking awesome. It's uh, Wednesday, June 15th, so it's during WWDC. It's from 6 to 11 p.m. at Nihilus's, like, amazing office. So it's going to be super awesome. The guest list is currently full, but we're going to try and open up a bunch more spots. So join the waitlist. Link in the show notes. And you go from there. Also, our Cotton Bureau t-shirt is coming back. It's already been requested enough times to come back, and it's only been off sale for like three weeks. So, so if you missed your chance to get a design details, design details t-shirt, they're coming back. Yes. Should be up this week, I believe. I think that's the trick. Yeah. Just follow us on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. We'll definitely share links there as soon as they're back up for sale. I put the link to the t-shirt in there too. Yes. It'll be the same page. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So keep an eye on that. And of course, hit us up on Twitter if you have feedback, thoughts, questions. Um, we're at Design Details FM. Or we're on our Slack team at spec.fm slash Slack. We're getting close to 5,000 people in there chatting about design and development and tools and resources and news and all sorts of fun stuff. Each other's work. Again, that's at spec.fm slash Slack. And with that, let's get into episode 134 with Braden Coetz. Hello, I am Braden Coetz. I'm a design partner at GV, which is the venture capital fund uh, funded by Alphabet, which uh, used to be Google. So it's a lot of... Ooh. A lot of names there. <laughs> That's a lot of uh, explanation. But yeah, my job is basically to go around and help startups build better uh, better products. Uh-huh. And you work with someone we've had on the show, Daniel Burka. Yeah, absolutely. Um, along with, there's three others? Yeah, there's a couple more people. Uh, Jake Knapp, yeah. John Zaratsky, uh, Michael Margolis, who's a user researcher, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, Kristen Brilliantes, who runs our uh, design studio. That's nice. a very small team. Yeah. And we have roughly 350 companies uh, that we're helping. So it's a pretty busy place day to day. Do you work together often? Uh, yeah, usually um, we do a lot of office hours with companies. So mm-hmm. they'll just come in for an hour. We'll talk about everything from how to build a design team or how to manage teams or you know, kind of looking at designs and giving them advice from, mm-hmm. from time to time. Uh, that's usually together. And then we often do sprints with companies. And that's this five-day process where we'll bring in some people from their company and some people from our team. And we'll work together really closely for a whole week. And that's usually two to three people from our team. We can go ahead and plug the sprint book because I read it. And it was good. Did you like it? Yeah, I liked it. It's cool. I, got, I brought you guys an audio CD of the whole thing. Hoping yes. that you guys had, because our publisher sent us audio CDs. I don't have and any I don't know CDs. Anyone <laughs> with an optical drive anymore. But how I figured, do you play a wait, CD? Yeah, how do we? You don't have op- no. No. You know what? Okay. I bet I have. A- <laughs> well, it was very thoughtful. Of well, you. I, well, I think <laughs> I have a super drive somewhere. Yes. See, I knew. Hmm. What I realized when I read the book was, um, I'll have to read it again. Why is that? Because. I feel like it was really good to read it and get this foundation of, okay, mm-hmm. here's a process that exists in Context. the world. Yeah. But then as soon as I actually want to do one, I'll probably have to read it again. Yeah. But that's, that's how it is with anything, right? Uh, yeah. It's a, actually implementing it probably requires or another refresher. We put uh, a bunch of checklists at the very back. Exactly. So you can always just look through those checklists and hopefully that'll speed you along. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, that's fine. It's I kind of thought of it as a recipe in some ways, in that there's all sorts of stuff that's written about cooking, but you don't mm-hmm. read that stuff when you're just starting to learn how to cook. You just pick up a recipe and you're like, I will make this cake and it will be a tasty cake uh-huh. and that will inspire me to cook more. Uh, and that's kind of how I thought about the book a little bit. If you follow that metaphor, uh, it seems like most people start to deviate from the recipes, right? Like yeah. once you have a little bit of experience. To- yeah, totally. What have that's- been some interesting deviations you've seen? Um 
Well, I, I think the most common one is that people try to skip the user research at the end. They're like, <laughs> we did a design sprint and they talked to us all about the ideas that they had and how they sketched them out and prototyped them. And we're like, but did customers like it? And they're like, oh, we didn't we didn't actually show it to customers. No, that was the whole point. That's 20% of the book, <laughs> yeah. of the process. Yeah. Why do they skip it? Um, it it's a n- number of reasons. I think sometimes in the world of design agencies, clients don't want to pay for that step. And there's a, there's a bunch of reasons why they might not think it's important. Um, and I think a lot of times it can come down to hubris, this idea that, oh, my ideas are probably going to work because mm-hmm. they make sense to me. I have taste. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, well, that, that's, yeah. that's part of what designers do, right? Is that yeah. we, we together critique each other's work and say, this is the right design. Mm-hmm. But the reality is you're building it for the business to function and you're building it for the customers to enjoy it. So and they be, have be to able tell you the right it. design. Yes. Absolutely. And there's been all these cases where I've just totally gotten it wrong, where we've built stuff. So I was working with this coupon site and there it was not looking great. It was looking like you'd imagine a coupon site would look. So the designers descended on it, put some sans serif font faces in, <laughs> like, reduced the color palette, just kind of simplified the overall information architecture. And we fixed some usability problems along the way. But um, when we showed it back to customers, all of a sudden they looked at it and said, wait a minute, who's behind this site? And they had this worry about the site that they never had before. Before, it felt like the secret spot on the internet where they could find good deals. And now it looked like this corporate-run thing. And we realized that we had fixed some usability problems, which was good. Um, but we screwed up the visual design. It looked good for designers, and we would pat ourselves on the bat for, back for it. But it was not the right design. Sort of like... Um I think that applies to Craigslist or Reddit or anything like that, right? Totally. It, it doesn't feel indie <laughs> if it's really polished, right? Yeah, if it's too polished, it's like this is a corporate thing. Someone yeah. someone paid for this. Craigslist is a company instead of a shitty website. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, would you say that Reddit is good design? Yeah. Yeah. And why? Why? What? Because it's... Yeah. Well, okay. It draws the wrong crowd. It's automatically bad. I have the, like, what's the the Reddit enhancement suite plugin? <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? No, but I can imagine. There's some yes, really I cool design things that they did. Like, if you open a thumbnail, you can click and drag down to make the thumbnail bigger or click and drag up to make it smaller. Little things like that. They do a I lot mean, of other things. The point but... is consuming content and, like, seeing what's been voted up, and that's all you see. So, for that reason, I would say it's probably fulfilling that goal. Right. It clearly has an audience, right? It's just... <laughs> <laughs> clearly. So what, what's your advice to like an agency that says usability research uh, isn't something we'd want to invest in? I, I think it's it's sort of fine for them, right? Like it's difficult when your client is paying you and they want a particular thing. At some level, you're in the service industry and you mm-hmm. have to deliver what your client wants. So if your client doesn't want any user research and you tell them it's really important, but they still don't want it, at the end of the day, like you may actually not have a lot of room to do it. Is that frustrating for you? I, I imagine that's well, like... I don't I don't work at <laughs> an agency. But you're like watching watching these people get to that point. It's like they've mixed all the ingredients and put the thing into the pan and then it's like, eh, we don't really want to put it in the oven because we don't want to pay for that, right? Um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty... Like, dude. It's pretty frustrating. Yeah. Uh, 40 me people, minutes? <laughs> That's as long as the rest of it combined. <laughs> Just I think it the, the most frustrating thing to me, though, is when we, when you work with a company and you show them user research and they go, wow, this is amazing. This has changed the way we think about product development. Now we know exactly what to go do and go do next. Um, and we're like, great, you know, you can do user research all the time. And then th- it's very hard to get them to do it on their own. To incorporate it in like the normal process. Yeah. So even when people see the value of it, it doesn't always stick. And I, I don't know if I have like great understanding of why that is. Do you have a hypothesis? 
I think you have to get through it a couple times to see that it's still valuable the second time and still valuable the third time. So I was just at ClassPass in New York, and the first I was going to be there for three months. So the first thing I did, I said, "We're just going to do user research every two weeks." And they looked at me a little weird, but I'm like, "This is my first week. Don't this is this is the one thing I want to do." So they said, "Okay," and uh, we found someone that was already at the company that was uh, had a lot of experience talking to customers, but no experience in user research. We trained her up on how to interview people in uh, in an unbiased way, and we brought in engineers and product managers to watch the first session. And then I get, we did it again in two weeks, and again in two weeks, and again in two weeks, and it finally stuck. So, so there it actually stuck, and it's been extremely helpful to them. I'm so curious about that word bias because a lot of biases we don't even realize that we have. Right. Where do you see that coming out in user research, and like, what are ways to have a non-biased approach? Kind of two questions. Yeah, I mean, in general, in user research, I think you back it up to the point where you're like, what do we want to know, and then what methods are we going to use to to find those answers? Because uh, I think far too often we have one tool, and then we just kind of use that tool all the time. And most commonly, I think that tool is surveys. Yes, because we've all filled out a survey, so we all think we can write a survey. And this is not true. <laughs> <laughs> like so, yeah. survey design is hard, uh, and and analyzing the results from a survey uh, so that you can actually use it to make product decisions is also hard. Um, but there's all sorts of other techniques you can use in the world of user research. The one-on-one -on -one interview is one of my favorite and the most versatile. Even there, you can start to ask people questions where um, they'll give you answers. They're really trying to be helpful, but they don't always lead to good data. But is there a way to filter out bias? Like I think. Even the the personality of the researcher right. is going to bias the person they're interviewing, right? And to some degree, their level of aggressiveness or friendliness or um, energy might change the comfort level, right? Like all these things impact it. How do you have an objective right. usability study? I Well, it's impossible, I think, to get rid <laughs> of it completely. Yeah. But um, this is an art. And the more you do it, the more you realize places where you can remove it. So for example, we often ask people to shop uh, between different products. So when we were working with Slack, we uh, they had an idea for a different way to do their marketing and onboarding. And so we developed that whole different idea as a separate brand. Right. And then we had customers shop between the current Slack and this other separate mm -hmm. brand. Uh, and these were people that didn't really know that we were kind of fooling them in this way. And they really thought these were two different products and told us what they thought. And in that way, we weren't saying like, hey, what do you think of the new idea versus the old idea, which is a clearly it inserts bias. And then the other way I think about it is it's not, it's not that you're listening to one thing that one person says, it's that you're searching for patterns. So if you bring in five people and four of them tell you just off the cuff, almost the exact same thing, it's pretty remarkable when you hear it. It's, it's very clear. Is there a time that the sprint process has come away with something that totally failed, like the process didn't work? Oh, yeah, totally. Those are some of the most fun, actually, because it makes you go back and um, reevaluate what you're trying to do to begin with. Well, I guess I think about it this way. Um, CEOs, when they come in with an idea and they come to designers and say, hey, will you, will you help me with this thing? The world of user research and design, they tell you, take that idea, go away and, and show it to customers and learn if it's good and then come back and tell your boss if it's good or not. But of course, if you do that and you come back and you're like, hey boss, turns out no one likes your idea, you're putting yourself in a very combative stance. And founders are very good at ignoring you if you tell them that their idea is no good because they get that back pressure a ton and God bless them, they're able to push through it and actually start companies. It's a very hard thing to do. So that is... 
that's fine, but it's not a good technique to help steer their company. So instead, what you have to do is say, that's an interesting idea. Let's build it together and make it real together and together go and put it in front of people. Um, and in those cases, if you do all of that and then you show it to people and together you realize that none of those people want the thing that you're trying to build, it gives you access to have a di more difficult conversation about the company and the value it's it's trying to bring to people in a way that I... I've not found any other way to reach reach that discussion. It builds up the communication and the team building more than the actual product itself. Yeah, right? absolutely. And it puts you on the same page, mm -hmm. or sorry, on the same side. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's cases where founders come in with these crazy ideas that everyone thinks are crazy, and you do a sprint and everyone's like, this is still crazy, why would we do this? Yeah, But, but the it, founder's right. And it happens the other way too, right? Where you you go, this is crazy, but I'm going to help you make it. And then customers love it. And you're like, well, I was wrong, right? <laughs> Shit, yeah. If, if I've learned anything, it's to be humble. Right. It's, it's, re it's really <laughs> hard to predict know. what people want and what they're going to say. Uh huh. So how do, you, how do you go into a new sprint without, like, you have exposure to so many products. I imagine you come in with a lot of background knowledge and all, like, really valuable things. But do you ever find that skewing your opinions of, like, Will this thing be successful based on your past experiences? Yeah, but I, I think the way the, the sprint works, we spend a lot of time first listening mm -hmm. to everyone in the room and what they think the problem is and what they think the opportunities are in the space. Uh, and then we have everyone sketch. So it's not just the designers sketching out our ideas. We have the engineers and the CEOs and the product managers and everyone's sketching ideas. And then we use this kind of collaborative democratic voting process mm -hmm. to let the room sort of use the wisdom of the crowd of the room to filter through the best ideas. So even if you're... Like you have a big personality or a lot of status or power in the organization or the team, you really can't put your thumb on the scale too hard. The team will kind of take it in the direction that's uh, that's right. What about for you personally, though? Are there ideas that you found yourself involved in a sprint in that you really didn't believe in? I mean, not that I that I can remember. I mean, it's always it's always kind of like a little Rubik's cube puzzle where you're like, oh, we're trying to help people get these loans mm -hmm. uh, and to approve them in a way that's easy and simple and they understand and creates trust. What are we doing today? Where is it breaking down? What can we change in order to improve that stuff? And so it's, in some ways, it's sort of an isolated little problem that you can play as around with. As long as there's a problem, you feel compelled to... Yes, cool. absolutely. And, and actually, like the longer... I've been a designer. The more I'm attracted to problems that will make the world, you know, that are will make a world the world a better place if we if we actually solve them well. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit? There, are 350 or 150 companies that you're working with. I don't know the exact number because it changes quite a bit. But the last time I checked in, I think it was about 350 investments. 350 investments. Right. So some of those have exited. Some of them, um, some of them are are in spaces that are so far so far removed from design that that we can't help them a ton and they don't really need our help. Some are places like Uber that has a phenomenal, great design team and we haven't done a ton of work with them either. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, two people in their garage and they know they need design, but they have no idea how to go about and get it. So can you talk a little bit to just what you personally are, are really involved in you, as much as you can? I know you mentioned you're at ClassPass in New York. Mm -hmm. Like what are some of the interesting problems that you're finding right now? I've, I've personally been interested in uh, health science lately. I've been doing some work with Flatiron Health in New York, their okay. oncology company that looks at uh, data. They were another one of the case studies, right? That's right, yeah. We helped them design a portion of their product that helps get cancer patients onto clinical trials mm -hmm. and to do that matching. Mm -hmm. uh, that that was just fascinating. Um, medical devices are interesting to me. Uh, the fitness space, obviously, because I was at ClassPass for three months is interesting. Uh, 
This, there's so much cool stuff out there. Uh-huh. Uh, it's interesting when you watch like HBO's Silicon Valley, it's really easy to get jaded about all the next little social tech startups that are helping everyone <laughs> live a slightly easier life in San Francisco. But when you when you dig a little bit deeper into the tech scene, there are companies doing amazing things. Do you like Silicon Valley? Uh, you know, I I cringe too much. I've seen a couple <laughs> episodes and I'm just like, I can't deal with it. We were watching last night's episode with our friend and he couldn't even watch. Yeah, Marshall was, <laughs> he was curled up on the couch with his hoodie over his head. Couldn't it was take it. Poor that, little guy. It was just that cringy. No, I don't, yeah, I don't like cringe humor. It's just not my style. So you haven't been watching this season? No. Mm. You get to meet the first designer. Oh, maybe I should that, watch it. That was, a, <laughs> that was an excellent scene. Oh my God. It was great. Um, Let's back up. Okay. I want to come back to GV. Uh, where are you from? Uh, like originally before I came to the Bay yeah. Area. Where were you born? OG. <laughs> I was born in Michigan and uh, my family kind of, I moved around the Midwest before coming out here. So I went to University of Illinois uh, for six good years trying to figure out what I wanted to graduate in. What'd you study? Uh, I studied, uh, I started in business, mm-hmm. I think, and I hated that. So I moved to English and I was bad at that. <laughs> and I moved to math. And then some guy brought a cat on a leash into class, and I mo- I was like, this is too much. So I moved over to computer science and eventually graduated. Wait, what? Math? Cat on a leash? Yeah. What happened? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> it, it just, I don't know. It just did not seem like the thing that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I think eventually Wait, is I- is cat on a leash a metaphor? No, like, like literally <laughs> he brought a cat on a leash uh, to class, and it was, it was, it was shocking. Huh. Um, but I, yeah, I think I realized that I- the thing I enjoyed about computer science was getting into the software engineering part about how people come together and build things. And the more I started studying it, the more I realized that's what I loved. And then eventually I got a chance to go to Carnegie Mellon and study design there. And then I ended up at Google. So you sw- when you went to Carnegie Mellon, you switched over to a design track, the HCI program? Yeah, it's the HCI program, which is human co- human computer interaction. Not the best. Not a, not a significant switch from computer science though, right? Right. It's very similar. So hang on, to clarify, so you, you wrapped up at University of Illinois in CS, computer science. Yeah, I want to be super clear. I was actually pretty much failing my grad program in CS, <laughs> okay. and I went to the dean, and I said, how about we just say this never happened? <laughs> okay. And she was like, okay. And then I applied to Carnegie Mellon, and luckily they let me in. Maybe they didn't see my transcript. Okay. So then you went to Carnegie Mellon, yeah. and you studied design. At that point, did you know what you wanted to do? No, I think I was just realizing design was a thing. I always thought design was art and that wasn't for me because I wanted to make things for people and it just it just seemed like art was not that wasn't the goal of art and also I was never really talented at sketching or doing things visually so I never I never felt like that would be something that I could do and then over time I slowly got better and better at the visual aspect of things and I realized that design was this whole discipline that's adjacent to engineering that is is more about what we're making and not how we're making it okay so, when you finished at Carnegie Mellon, what happened next? I was lucky enough to interview at a bunch of different companies like eBay and Yahoo. Out here? Uh, I think they sent out some people to, to Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, and I remember Google asked me, they said, do you want to be a designer or a researcher? And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will do anything, uh, any job that you have for me. So, they, they were nice enough to actually interview me for both roles. And then at the end of that, they said, we'll hire you for either. What do you want to do? And so I just kind of flipped a coin and picked design. Why Google? I was, um, 
I was really impressed with the products that they were creating. This was when? 2006? Yeah. This is kind of around the time Gmail had launched, uh, a little bit before Calendar, I think. Uh, but yeah, they were just moving away from only search and ads into a bunch of other products. And I was interested to see how they build things for the web. How big was the design team at that time? I'm not sure for certain, but I want to say around like 20 or 30 people. Okay. It it felt very small. We all sat in one place. 20 or 30, very small. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Relatively. Relatively, yeah. Um, Okay, so you went to Google. You chose the design track. Uh, What did you end up working on at first? I think the first project I had um, was for Gmail chat, and we were working on, uh, first of all, making that usable because it was... It was weird. It was this moment where it worked for the team, but then when we took it into user studies, they didn't quite understand it. We were, I mean, this was before any chat existed on the web. Wait, I can send messages outside my messages that I'm sending anyway? (laughs) In this little box that shows up in the lower right? So we removed the send button because that little box overlaid all this other stuff. And we thought, that's no problem, right? Because you just hit return like a normal human being. Uh, And then we showed it to customers. Turns out they would just like type their message and, and just stare at it. Like, I don't know what to do next. Oh, crap. <laughs> sure. uh, and then we put we put like a big banner on it that said, press enter to send your message. And our brilliant idea was to show this for like the first two times to make sure we trained people and it would go away. So we set that all up and we went to the next room and we sent someone a message for the first time and it popped up on the lower right and they shut it right away. We're like, what the hell? So we sent them another message. It would pop up and they'd shut it right away. And then our researcher was like, what is that thing that's happening in the corner? And the participant said, Oh, I hate those pop-up ads. Like, damn it. Like our little banner was so bright that we screwed it up. Uh, and then we went back and made a little tiny gray line that said press enter to send your message that finally made it work. So that was my first exposure to this idea of iterative user testing and how it can be totally working for you as a, as a development team. But had we launched it like that, it just would not have had any success in the market. And it was just a tiny little thing. And I got to work on the emojis that were in there that turned. I don't uh-huh. know if you remember that. I don't. Mm-hmm. They were sideways, like when you type them in, but then they rotated when they turned. And that is the last emoji project I will ever work on. Why? Are you burned on emojis? I love emojis, but they're just so, um, it's so hard to get feedback from the team. You know, they're like, make it look happier. Bigger <laughs> <laughs> smiles. Like, I only have 13 pixels to deal with. This is really hard. Did you choose uh, Gmail chat? Or were you kind of the Gmail it? chat life choose you? Yeah. I think I think it sort of chose me. Uh, and then after that I got a chance to work on Enterprise, which is a whole nother a whole nother thing. Now, Enterprise design we have not gotten to talk much about on this show. Oh yeah. Uh, what was that transition like for you? It was actually pretty easy because at the time all of Google Enterprise was just called Gmail for your domain. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it started out very simply. Yeah. Sign uh, up. And it was about like DNS configurations and account management and stuff like that. So uh, I think for me, the the hardest part was actually after we designed it and user tested it and I went to the engineers and I said, great, so here's the design. I'm pretty sure it works. They said, okay, can you build it for us? I was like, wait a minute, I thought that was your job. And they're like, well, we don't have a lot of people that understand HTML and CSS, so you've got a CS degree. Can you work on that? <laughs> I was like, all right. So you did. So, so yeah, so I did. And <laughs> I, learned a t- I learned a ton more about how to write good HTML and CSS uh-huh. that, on that project. How long did you end up having to do that for? Uh, just a couple months. Okay. It did not take that long. Interfaces were very simple back then. <laughs> <laughs> Simpler time. Simpler times. I find that the word enterprise uh-huh. brings to mind this imagery of like, overcomplicated, messy 
user interfaces. Like, right. Not wait. to mention DNS configuration. <laughs> a lot of power and less, less. I don't know, uh, simplicity. Mm-hmm. That doesn't have to be the case. That's right. Um, like, can you talk a little bit about your experience, like what the differences were between enterprise and I guess consumer facing and if, if there really were any in terms of the design process? I mean, in some ways, I think it's what the, it's what the business needs. So, you know, there's all sorts of different types of center design. There's user-centered design where you listen to your customers and they tell you what you want and you put it in there. Uh, there's sales-centered design where you talk to your sales team and they say, if we just have this one more feature, we'll be able to ma- <laughs> we'll be able to make our our goals. Just this one more, <laughs> and the business will will keep on ticking. You know, and you and you do that a hundred times in a row, and then you have a hundred features that don't always quite fit together. Um, that can be a problem for your business. Uh, or if you're pragmatic about it, that can be okay. A lot of these enterprise software that people are using, they're not using it because it's delightful to use like the iPhone app of the day, right? They're using it because it somehow saves them time or money or helps their business, you, you know, improve. Or they or have it's to. administratable, right? right. That, like I, I worked in enterprise IT and the big thing was it had to be administratable at scale. It had to be something they could manage all the data for. It had to be something they understood and could easily scale out to a bunch of companies. Like the the requirements are not that difficult. It's just getting them to understand that they're there. It's right. really hard. And like a design is a tool. You can spend money and make a delightful enterprise app. It may cost you a lot more money to do that. Some some people are are willing to do that. Some people aren't. That's okay. Would you say at that point that Google was sales driven or user driven? I would say at that point we were definitely user driven. <laughs> I don't I don't work at Google anymore. Really. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. We'll get to that. Um, okay, so then you jumped over to enterprise, uh-huh. worked on Google for domains. Yeah. Um, what next? Uh, and then I think I worked on Google spreadsheets. Okay. There was this uh, acquisition in New York that I think was called Excel the Web, and they were hired to basically build a version of spreadsheets and launch it. And that was just around the time the Rightly acquisition happened. So you know, Google Docs was just starting to form. Uh, and that was that was a really fun team to work with. I think that was the time I under I started to learn about design polish, about how to how to get a team to care about quality in a different way. Because um, I would push them to fix a bug, right? Because early days of I mean, even when it launched, it was still pretty rough around the edges. But before it launched, it was really rough internally. And I would get them to fix one bug and they'd look at it and go it's basically the same it's still it's still really buggy i kind of think of it as it's a it's a wall filled with cracks and you fill in one crack and you look at it and you're like it's still a wall filled with cracks like it doesn't uh change what it looks like over time i i built up enough credibility with the team to get them to sit down and fix about 2 to 3 dozen bugs in one go i did everything i could to encourage them and cheerlead them along and at the end of it they went and used the product again and saw the difference and they really felt the difference and from that point they were willing to invest in quality in a different way do you find that that reluctance to invest in quality is still an issue today it is in some places i mean and then there's a flip side too of overinvesting in quality right. i mean design is this weird thing where um at some level you need to have a bit of faith in it because there's these effects that are very long-term and hard to measure. So if we design something, you and I today, and we ship it out there, uh, let's say it's like a sign-up flow, and we measure it exactly the same uh, metric. So we're like, okay, this doesn't help our business. But 
if it's more delightful, if it's clearer, if customers understand what they're signing up for, hopefully six months down the road, our churn numbers are a little bit less because the customers that got through that experience understood what they were signing up for. And if they leave, they're still telling their friends it's a good experience. So hopefully we're improving our retention and our word of mouth and all these things, almost impossible to measure. So at some level, design investment in design quality is a faith-based initiative. How do you, but how would you make that case to someone at a startup, like a designer at a startup that can't get leadership to buy into this like non-measurable that we don't have six months to find out if it works. Yeah. Right. It's not always the right thing to invest (laughs) in, right? (laughs) And if that's the thing you want to be doing, you should find a culture that values it enough to to invest in it. But I've also seen the other way where teams just over polish on the Mm -hmm. design. It looks beautiful. It's delightful, but it turns out it's not the thing that millions of people want to use, or maybe it's not even the thing that that a small number of people want to buy, then you're in just as much trouble. It doesn't matter how nice your product looks if no one uses it. What's a way to get out of that rut? Because I feel like from the design angle, it seems that like- Visual design angle. Yeah, I'm, I'm adding I'm adding the, this delight. Like this, right. I'm putting my faith that this is going to be a long-term return, that this is going to like build uh, retention or, or whatever it may be in the long-term. I think, Maybe you're designing the whole time with that in mind, right? I think it's just the size of those. Well, I think it's about user research again. Because if you <laughs> yeah. come back and watch people yeah. use your product and you see them happy at the delight and then you also see them go, yeah, but I don't really need this thing. That's, like, hopefully you're like, well, <laughs> if I'm going to work two more hours on this product. Like, I'm going to work on that problem. Yeah. That's the way to get that data. Like, yeah. th- those things are hard to measure unless you see a user use it and be like, oh, this this actually was more delightful to that person. This actually made more sense to them. It was clearer. Totally. But it's interesting because you're still, at the end of the day, trying to measure what you've said is non, not measurable, right? It's like an intangible, hard to trace back thing. Until it is. you tangent it by talking to customers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you can grab more of it that way, but even then it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to measure if it actually has an effect on your business. It's, it's qualitative, not quantitative, right? Yeah. Okay, so Google Spreadsheets, at that point, how long had you, had you been at Google? I, I can't remember. It's maybe two or three years. Okay, so that's like switching teams pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. Then in that case, what was that like? Um, oh, sort of su- it was super fun. Bouncing around. It was really fun to join a team, like help them envision their product, help them get it out the door, and then kind of quickly move on to the next team that had the same type of problem. <laughs> uh, in my 20% time, I did Google Trends, which uh-huh. was, which was uh, uh, really fun. Um, was there ever any desire to stick around and like see the long term of how those things played out? Yeah, and then um, eventually I came back and worked on the on the Gmail team for about <laughs> two years. So you came back years later. You're like, all right, let's see what happened. Well, I, j- I jumped around a lot, and then I settled on Gmail, and I, I had a lot of fun with that team. Okay, why'd you settle on Gmail? Uh, it was a number of reasons. They had designers that I really wanted to work with, and a front end team that was excellent and scale. Which yeah, is, yeah. I mean, scale's fun for me personally. It's I don't think it's the size. It's the fact that the people I know in my life use the product. Mm-hmm. It could be maybe only like 100 people in my life use the product. I think I would be just as happy and fulfilled that I could make their lives better. But it's also nice to have 100 million other people that you can help. For Gmail, it's such a personal, intimate thing for a lot of people. Like this is my communication with the the world in many ways. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like designing for? Um, Like is that that a high pressure thing? Is that a a liberating thing? it was a little high pressure to know that people spend so much time in the app 
And that, you know, if the app goes down, for example, that like, people leave their office and go outside and look at the sun and go, what is happening? Oh, there's a real world. <laughs> uh, but I think the more challenging thing about it was the diversity of the um, how people use the product. I remember I was talking with my friend Carrie, uh, who is a quantitative user researcher at Google. And I, I walked by her screen and she had all of these letters on it. And it was kind of around the time... Uh, Matrix was more in, in everyone's mind. And I looked at it. I was like, are you reading the Matrix, Carrie? What the hell? She goes, oh, no, this is um, these are user sessions. And we're doing kind of like anonymized analysis to figure out uh, how pe- like the patterns of people using in the product. And so it would it had have one letter for like thread list, which is the inbox. And then it would have an O for open and then um, a mail conversation view, a CV. And then the letters would go on and on and on. And you could just sit there and read someone's entire session and then go into the next line and read another entire session. And very quickly, I got to see, after she taught me kind of the code about how to read these things, that people had very different behaviors in the product. And after I started to pick up a couple of the big ways that people navigate and move through the product and deal with their their mail, it became much easier to design for. Isn't that one of the trade-offs of going designing at scale is that there's always going to be a million ways people use your product? Variance things that you'd never expect, edge cases, all this kind of stuff. (laughs) How do you deal with that complexity, right? I think it's this balance of wanting to be supportive of the way people are used to using the product and being opinionated about um, how best they can be efficient at at whatever tasks they're trying to get done. So at the time, we knew that our number one customer support request was uh, for folders. Everyone had come from Outlook basically, or Yahoo Mail, and they had folders there, and they came into our product and they said, where the hell are the folders? So it's number one request. But as we looked at it, we, we, we realized that we actually don't, we weren't doing a very good job of helping people organize their mail. And so it wasn't so much that they needed folders, they just needed better ways to organize their mail. And that's when we went in and redesigned some of the labeling and move to features. Uh, and then all of a sudden that request went way, way down in the stack. So it was this combination of respecting their needs and then also being opinionated about the fact that like la- multiple inclusion labels are a much better way to organize. How did you find the team made that decision? Because I imagine if you have a million people asking you for folders, there might be some pressure from leadership to be like, just ship folders, right? Right. How did the team come to the decision to like actually explore that a little bit more? I don't, I don't know if I remember exactly how we did it, but I do remember us thinking about how how managing both folders and tags would be really complicated. <laughs> and we were, st- we were looking for something simpler. Uh-huh. <laughs> how many designers were on the team at that point? Uh, probably about five, four or okay. five. Yeah. How did you make the decision to ship that implementation? Was that like a long drawn out process of like going back and forth and critique? Or was it just kind of a like, hey, this, this thing looks cool. Let's ship it. Uh, my friend Michael Leggett did most of the work on it. And uh it was a, a long process of doing user studies and prototypes and user studies and prototypes and then using it ourselves. I mean, that was the other thing I learned from working on Gmail was that you can draw a picture of a mock-up and think it's a really brilliant idea. And then once you put real data in it, it's a totally different experience. And once you can use it yourself with real data, it's again a totally different experience. So so now depending on what I'm working on, I'll sometimes just drop my design tools and say like, you know, this looks ugly. And I'm sure I can get it looking nicer, but what I really want to do is figure out what this is like with real data, because that's going to give me the, the insight I need about whether this design is going to work. What tools do you use to switch between those fidelities? You know, it's frustrating. The like whenever you switch between, you know, Sketch and Envision or Framer, it always feels like you're 
you're losing a ton of I work. I agree. So I, I don't think there's any great tools yet. Whoa, no great tools. Uh, no, yeah, I don't think there's any great tools yet. Because when I look at um, the world of engineering, they can stand on shoulders of giants. You know, you can you can sit down in a couple lines, pull in hours and hours of work and careful thought by other practitioners and build on top of that work. As designers, when we sit down and sketch and we're like, oh, I'm going to design something really good, we're pulling out like the text tool and the color palette. And it's it's just like you're working with atoms instead of with large Duplo building blocks. And it's super frustrating. Who even writes code these days? Don't you just copy it from Stack Overflow and like paste <laughs> it in? But that's what I mean. Yeah, you can, you can just pull in a node module that does close to what you want yeah. and be on with it. But as a designer, if someone's like, design this onboarding signup flow for your mobile app. Like, where's the quick couple lines that I can type that gets me 90% of the way there mm-hmm. and helps me understand everything about the user research that someone did when they designed theirs? Why do you think that hasn't happened for designers yet? Like, it seems to make so much sense. Yeah, I think we don't build tools in the same way for ourselves as, as engineers do. Uh, and I think there's this addiction to the novel that designers have that engineers don't. Like as an engineer, if you're like, I'm going to design my own HTTP web server, other engineers would be like, you're crazy. Like, <laughs> not don't, smart. <laughs> not smart at all. And and yet that happens if as a designer, I'm like, I'm going to design my own radio button style. Everyone's like, yeah, do it. But no, that's a bad idea if your customers don't understand the radio button style. You're taking on a lot of risk by by redesigning something like that. Wait, what's a radio button? <laughs> So in the olden days, we had a thing called the web before, <laughs> before mobile phones existed. Do you think that it's, uh, this is a really interesting topic. Is it the design tools that make us feel like everything has to be new? Like I open up the canvas and it's just waiting for me to draw on it. Uh, is it a symptom of the design tool or is it a symptom of like design culture and the way that we talk to each other and think about building products that makes us always want to start from scratch and like not have this concept of reusability across every designer, right? I think it's both. I think the cultural thing is hard to change because design is rooted in the visual arts and the visual arts are rooted in this search for the new, uh, the new the new lens or way to look at something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's difficult for us as designers to to see someone copy something and say, good work, that was the right decision to copy that. Um, but sometimes that was actually the right decision. They Like your job isn't to innovate on every little piece of thing you design. Um, but I also think the tools don't help us in in very good ways there either. Like I can't create something and very easily share it in a way that you can drop it into your design tool. Is this something that you would be interested in changing or fixing? Like I think I look around Twitter and and just from talking to people and seeing design inside different companies and it's like the process is broken. Yeah. Or it's just not very good yet. Right. Is that something that you're interested in in working on or fixing? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. If I had a year free, I would either go backpacking or work on this problem. Design tools. Yeah. Uh, what are the tools that you use right now that you've at least settled on? Are there any you're excited about? Um, you know, I haven't done a full audit of all the different design tools out there. It's a little hard. For That's me to impossible. Say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like I like Sketch a fair amount. I was a really big uh, Fireworks fan, mm-hmm. and when it died, I I cried a tear. Uh, just one, just one, because uh, it was also very buggy uh-huh. and slow and single processor. Uh, actually, I wish I knew how to use Photoshop. I'm going to admit right now, I don't actually know how to use Photoshop. I think I, that's okay. I never learned. That's fine. That might be for the best. <laughs> you haven't been uh, tainted. Scarred. By- you haven't been hurt the way we have. 
Um, what about for prototyping? What do you use? I just started to use Framer a little uh-huh. bit, um, which is really good for animation and kind of between two screens. Um, but I also really love InnoVision for longer flows, and that's usually the types of stuff that the fidelity that I work at, where we're trying to figure out, is this flow or this product or this feature even something that people want? And at that level, you don't need the super fancy animation and stuff like that. You need copywriting and flow and you know very simple stuff. And there's lots of tools that you can use to wire together. It and makes stuff just real enough. Like the tools we're using for quote prototyping are based on like the original tools you had for animation, where like you'd either have a storyboard, which is like yeah. a, a an Envision or what's the Flinto, mm-hmm. bunch of those Marvel, uh, and then you have Tweens, which is right. like the the in between two keyframes, and that's all you get. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's exactly. You it. don't get very like complicated stuff unless you delve in really deep with like Quartz Composer and stuff like that. But I wish it was easier to go from like the the storyboard and sketch to mm-hmm. the wired up thing in Envision to, oh, there's one little interaction that's really important to this prototype. So now I want to jump down to Framer to right. do that interaction, but then still be able to stitch together that, you know, 10, 15 minute experience that you can give to a customer and watch them use it. Well, I feel like much in the way that animation has built out from the storyboard, mm-hmm. it should be broken up into scenes. Like yeah. when you have to develop the entire thing into a prototype on your own, that's really frustrating. But if you can build off a single story like or a single piece of the story totally then it gets really interesting and i just don't think we've we've gotten to that point yet i think it, it really closely fits animation because you're, you're still going through a story someone's just walking you through it okay let's go back okay uh you're you're back at gmail uh-huh what happened next where did you where did you switch over to uh i worked on this little project called buzz yeah uh which yes. was one of google's uh-huh. first uh, <laughs> nice. forays into social and uh, I actually decided to leave that team before it launched. And uh, I went over to Google Ventures. I was considering joining a startup. And so I talked to my friend, Joe Kraus, who, who I'd worked with at Google before, who had done startup work. He, um, he founded Excite, the search engine, hmm. uh, and Jotspot, which was kind of a wiki-type product that Google had acquired. So I asked him, I want to join a startup. Give me some advice. And he said, we just started Google Ventures. Why don't you meet with a couple of our entrepreneurs and maybe there'll be a fit there. So I remember the first company I met with, they were an ad tech product and I looked at their their design and I said, you might want to make those links blue and underlined. And they came back the next day and like told my boss, this guy's a genius. <laughs> Our metrics are through the roof. <laughs> exactly. So I got the job and I think every meeting has been harder than that first meeting. <laughs> that was a pretty easy Everyone's one. Everyone's kind of figured that one out. Now. Yeah. The interesting thing to me is that at this point you'd been at Google for several several years mm-hmm. and that's just rare that's yeah. really rare here the number we keep hearing in, is like the average tenure for a designer is like 11 months really in the yeah. bay area it's very short right so but in those first four or five years at google i got to like launch six products that's pretty yeah, good that's that was fun and then at google ventures i get to work on all sorts of different projects all the time so i i haven't ever i've never really felt like i've just been at one company for 10 years, it feels like I've gotten to move around quite a bit, if that makes sense. But with all the benefits of Google. Yeah, the long commute to Mountain View. <laughs> <laughs> That's the biggest perk, dude. Yeah. So Plenty much of time to catch up on my New Yorker subscription. So podcasts. much alone time on the shuttle. Well, okay. So after that first conversation with a, a startup, how did you approach or how do you approach giving feedback to companies on their work? Is, is that something where you have to be kind of standoffish and like be respectful of what they've already done? Is it something where a lot of times you get to go in and tear it down and start from scratch? Like, how does that kind of work out? Well, I, the big thing I've learned is to be humble. 
I can realize that there's very few things that I actually know the right answer to. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll stumble on that if someone's doing like an inbox design. I'm like, inbox is like, got this. Like, <laughs> trust me, I can do this. <laughs> I'm pretty sure people still use email about, no, uh, actually I'm not. It's like maybe people use email very differently now that mobile phones and all sorts of other things have happened. So usually, sometimes I can look at patterns and say like, I'm pretty sure people are confused about this thing. Why don't we just change it? But mostly I talk with them about their goals, what they're trying to achieve with whatever interface or, or product. Um, try to understand uh, if the thing that they're building is likely to meet those goals and where the risks are. And then once we've identified where those risks could be, then we start, we start looking at user research or other methods to identify whether or not the thing that they're making is actually going to work. A little more on the team side, though, mm-hmm. like how do you find it is working with such a huge diversity of design teams, not just products? Um, it's fun. Like I've, I've learned so much in this job from, you know, from big design teams, from little design teams, from people care that right. care about all sorts of different things. So what I'm most interested in when I talk to people that have this huge range of experience across lots of companies, yeah. which is very rare, it's like, what are the macro trends that you're seeing in terms of how design teams are structured and working, how design cultures are are growing, whether for better or worse? Like, what are some of the macro trends you're seeing across, I guess, at this point, startups and big companies? One of the biggest trends I've seen is that um, the generalist is is really a, a pretty big thing now. Right. I mean, it used to be that you would have a copywriter, a visual designer, an interaction designer, an information architect, a user researcher, you know, and the list goes on and on about all the different roles you would need in order to to ship a particular product. And at startups, you know, on, t- on design teams of between five and let's say 20, um, a, this still user research is, is kind of broken out, but a lot of those other roles are expected to be kind of one person. And I think that's actually a pretty good thing up, up to a point. I think that like at the sen- senior level, you can get good at a lot of those skills. And at some point you have to say, okay, I'm going to specialize in copywriting. I'm going to specialize in prototyping, but it's it's really helpful to have a team of people that are all have some base level capability in all those skills. It seems like sometimes when people get to that level of seniority, instead of focusing in on in on one skill, there's a pressure to just become a manager. Right. Have you seen that as well? Absolutely. What yeah. Do you, what Would do you, you think? I mean, that's fine. The their their skill and superpower can be management. Which but what is, if it's which, not? What if they feel like that? I'm a generalist. I can do all these things pretty well. I could get better at one and stay in the same spot or be a manager and not know if I'm good at it. Right. I mean, you got to do what you love. So, I mean, some some cultures will support that and say, look, we've got two tracks, one for management and one for individual contributors. And they go parallel for a while. At some point, you know, if you're going to be a VP, you kind of have to manage people. Like at some level, it does actually fork off. But other other cultures say, you know, we're going to keep those two tracks parallel and you can add a ton of value just being an individual contributor and we're okay with that. Do you think that that's true? That you can continue to add value as an individual contributor um, at that level? Yeah. I do. I, th- I think there are some problems that are so thorny and difficult and solving them correctly is so important to the business that you sometimes need small teams of people that are that are working on that problem that are all very, very good at what they do. Do you believe uh, that when people say managers and ICs can be on the same parallel track, that that's... That they can be at the same level? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that honest? Or do you feel like there is an inherent power structure of just being a manager? Manager sounds like they're managing people, right? I mean, you are. But like, 
the the promise that's being sold is that you're parallel to an IC, even right. though you're technically like in most orgs might have more power, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, it all depends. I, I, I totally believe that people can be an individual contributor and add just as much value as a manager, you know, at the same level. Okay. Yeah. I mean... In some ways, managers are serving like are serving their employees, right? You're a coach. You're trying to help all the people around you perform at their at their best levels. The Warriors coach does not get as much credit as Steph Curry does, right? That's true. Steph Curry's a very good individual contributor. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so all right, that's our metaphor for this one. Um what about uh back to some of the macro stuff? Like yeah. what are you seeing in terms of internal design cultures, I think about um, like not only valuing design within organizations, but valuing the time it takes to actually ship something good. So like going through these loops of critique and user research, they're long and expensive. Um, I think it takes something special to build a culture that embraces that. Yeah, I do think that's changing for consumer products, uh, partly because the expectations from, from consumers has just gone up. When you look at apps in the app store, the level of delight and polish on them is incredible compared to where we were 10 years ago in interaction design. So you look at that and you go, well, I want my product to feel like those other successful products. You just have to do that much investment to actually get there. Okay. Do you find, what about outside of consumer products? Getting a, a design team to have that sort of buy-in from from leadership or the CEO or whoever it may be? I mean, I think it's tough. I think the way that it just it changes a lot from organization to organization. In my experience, it's it's whether or not the leadership team um, has been in a spot where they've seen design make a material impact on the business. If they've seen that and they understand that it can happen, um, then they're willing to invest more and more. But that's where I think designers need to kind of step up. Yeah. There is this hype thing around design right now, right, where everyone cares about design and they're hiring designers very early on the company and they're saying, I heard that if I have design, we'll be successful. I hired a couple designers, go make me successful. And if, you know, if the designers do the right thing, hopefully they're they're helping figure out what that business should be and unlocking values for the customers and for the business. If they're doing the wrong thing, they're making like a very pretty logo <laughs> system uh, or very delightful animations. And what I worry about is that I think sometimes designers get into that mode of building things for other designers instead of adding value to the company. And if that happens... Um, people within bus- the business world are going to learn that just investing in design doesn't always get you um, a, doesn't get you value. I find, I agree completely. Um, from talking to people, it seems like uh, they can never get, at least at startups, it seems, uh, they can never get that first shot to like sit at the business table and work on strategy and show that design can have a meaningful impact like it's almost a chicken and the egg thing mm-hmm. at that point would you have advice for designers who are stuck in the cycle of like all i'm being asked to do is move pixels i'm right. not being asked to to help with business and strategy right um that's really common um and it's often common i think because there isn't enough staffing actually to do the design work so you have 20 engineers and one designer and you're just totally underwater uh, in those cases, you have to figure out how to get yourself out from underwater. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, a couple ways to do that. One is to hire a team yeah. around you. Um, uh, the other is to say no to things, to say no enough times that gives you room to work on the higher value things. Uh, and that can be a difficult conversation with your manager. 
about whether or not those things are, are valuable to the company. But I would encourage people to have that conversation. If you go and talk to your manager and say, hey, I think this is the biggest issue for the company. And I think I can, I can help us reach a solution to that if I work on this stuff over here. And they say, no, we want you to be designing icons. Like you can choose, there's lots of different companies to work for, uh, or you can choose to work on the icons. Right. That's Drawing icons is super fun. <laughs> it is. It's great. It's a dream come true for Bryn. Just as long as it's not emoji. <laughs> no emojis. Um, I want to know from your observations of designers across all these teams that you've worked with, what do you feel like is the biggest blind spot or weakness in terms of being effective at what we do? Is it prototyping is it knowing how to code like where where do you fe- feel like designers are are falling short at a macro level um, pitching in on business value <laughs> this is this is a tough one i i think about um software engineering a little bit actually and um what changed in the world of software engineering that led to high quality software being sort of automatic and relatively easy for us to create um and and i look at product design and the quality of the product design that we're creating. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of the things we design aren't very successful, right? We, we make them and people don't want to use them and the products don't exist anymore. And if we're honest with ourselves about us making those mistakes, we need to start thinking about how we get better at it. Um, and the way that software engineers got better at it is they started to look at processes that they could use, uh, the way they could change um, the ownership of things like quality to make sure quality was everyone's job, uh, and even just some tasks that you would do day to day. Like you, as a software engineer, you used to really not spend a lot of time writing tests, but now that's a huge part of your job. I think all of that stuff will slowly also change for design as well, that we'll start to have like standard ways of working that we know tend to work better than just kind of going by the seat of your pants, that not only do designers understand those processes and that they can scale up their team because other designers know it, but the other people in your organization, the engineers, the product managers, the CEOs, have a sense of this is how design typically works. You know, Right now, if you're running an organization, you go, hey, we're going to do waterfall. We're going to spec everything out, and then we're going to build it for a year before we launch it. People will tell you you're crazy, right? <laughs> right, um, right. That level of understanding of like typical general good process doesn't exist in the world of design yet, but I think we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me uh, this past week, I'm working on like a system that has just a ton of assets and uh, it's, it's be- not that bad. It's become impossible to have a source of truth uh, for engineers to look at and say, this is what we're building because it gets, starts to get fragmented among files. Mm-hmm. Then you bring in content strategy and words are different in different places. Mm-hmm. It became really hard to manage. Right. Started thinking of systems like subversion control and Git. Mm-hmm. And so I found this really rad Git sketch plugin where oh. you can like branch. Git sketch. Yeah, Git sketch and you can branch and fork and pull requests and merge and commit and do all this kind of crazy stuff. And it makes so much sense like if you think about it the way that Engineers have been building systems for working together on code. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Binary files and like the actual technical implementation has a lot of issues, but. But it feels like that's like we can, we have a lot to learn from that. And I think Git is one thing that we're pretty much missing. Systematic development, right? right? Well, and it's moving from the the individual designer or engineer, the sort of savant, or I'm the genius, I'm going to sit down and design this whole system for you, whether that design means writing code or, or pushing pixels, to a team of people building it together. And 
our design tools were never built for teams of people making it together. And at some level of complexity, and we've reached that in modern product development, you need teams of people and none of our tools are, are made for it. So we have a, we have a crisis in tooling right now. You seem optimistic. I'm totally, I mean, it's been solved for other disciplines. I feel <laughs> yeah, like we'll figure yeah. it out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, related question. Have uh-huh. you tried Figma yet? Uh, no. Should it I give it a go? Multiplayer, like it Google multiplayer. Docs. It's not out yet, but it's like the, the tool is out. The multiplayer is not shipped yet, but it is functional and Very we've cool. gotten to see it. It's really cool. I, I'm super excited about some sense of source control fitting, mm-hmm. start, starting to fit with, uh, um, the design tools and the ability for us to move from design to code and then back from those coded components back into our yes. design tools. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what I've a been big thinking piece about for, sure. for so long. Why yeah. design it like three times and then have to design it starting over? Right. But also like why design at different sizes? Like if you just change one parameter in the code, it should just let you test at all sizes or mm-hmm. why? Percentages. Yeah, percentages. I think... Um, I think about things like accessibility text sizes. Right. If you have a sketch document with 10 artboards and you want to see what this looks like for someone that has it all the way up, uh, accessibility font all the way up, pretty much impossible. Right. Because well, even you if you're try. dealing with production things, yeah. your sketch environment does not pull any, in any <laughs> of those production widgets. It also doesn't handle it the same way as the actual code. Yeah, it doesn't behave logically at all right. in terms of, of structure and flow and like understanding variables. Design right. everything on the iPhone natively. <laughs> it's almost like Xcode is the solution to all of our problems. Um, I don't think anyone would say that about Xcode. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, one question we like to ask before we go is, okay. it can be as deep as you want, but what keeps you up at night? Uh, last night, it was his dog that I was taking care of that just kept crawling under the bed and barking. Literally. <laughs> Literally, the dog was keeping me up at night. Um you know, not too much. Like, I'm very optimistic about um, technology, where we're going, how we're making the world better. And I'm optimistic about the world of design and how we're getting better at our craft. All right. That's a very fair answer. Good sleeper. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you sleep very well. I'm very jealous. <laughs> Anything you want to plug before you go? No. All right. Cool. Simple. Thanks so much for Thanks taking for the time. Out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank Appreciate you. It. This is a great conversation. That was episode 134. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Braden, for coming and hanging out with us. That was super fun. Yes, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, let us know your thoughts. Uh, If you've been listening for a while or if this was your first episode, leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings help us move up the charts. They help new people like you find the show, and it means a whole lot to us. If you have feedback, of course, you can leave comments there, and we enjoy reading all of the reviews. Uh, Again, it just takes a minute, but every iTunes review really does help us, and we appreciate it. Of course, as always, you can just hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM and on our Slack team at spec.fm slash Slack. And don't forget, we have a meetup coming up and t-shirts are back. We don't make any money off those. They're just as cheap as they possibly can be so you can get cool t-shirts because they're awesome. They really are awesome. I'm wearing one right now. Link in the show notes for the t-shirts and uh, the meetup. And we hope to see you soon. Bye. Bye.